Hi folks, your host Christian Hagen here. Wanted to apologize up top real quick for the lack of regularity in releasing these mini-episodes or deviations. The original plan was to have these come out in between each of our regular episodes, which come out every other week. Uh, Timing hasn't really worked out on that, but hopefully we'll be able to keep a more consistent schedule going forward. Uh, For those of you who are wondering what our next movie will be, stick around to the end of this episode when I will announce what we'll be watching, and a quick text, uh, a context through which you can watch this movie if you are seeing it for the first time. And considering uh, what we are going to be discussing, I think this will be a new movie for a lot of you, and I really hope that I can help you out with a a little little context for for your view and pleasure. It's a weird thing I just said, but we're going to move past it. In the meantime, enjoy this deviation. Okay. In his inaugural address in 1981, President Ronald Reagan succinctly summarized the ideology of a political movement that has carried far past his tenure a phrase that has morphed into a rallying cry for generations of angry conservatives. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Ignoring that Reagan was specifically talking about economic recession and taxation in the late 1970s, and that Reagan actually wielded significant governmental authority and regulations throughout his time in office, this quote is still cited to this day by Republicans, neoconservatives, and libertarians as a succinct articulation of laissez-faire capitalism, free trade, and the deregulation of Wall Street, environmental hazards, and the amassing of individual wealth. And if you believe in the invisible hand of the market, in the private sector's capacity to save and maintain the public good, this sentiment is appealing. It creates an external obstacle to progress, one that must be overcome in order for private citizens to thrive. The government is here to take your money, take your guns, take your religious freedoms. The government holds the power, and the government needs to get out of our pockets. But there's a fundamental flaw in this ideology, one that needs to be corrected now more than ever. The government is not an amorphous cabal of anti-individualist overseers. The government is not an all-powerful hierarchy kept afloat by the endless sapping of our money. The government is not a business that can operate purely on cutting costs and generating profit. There is no the government. There is government. And government is a tool. Historians and anthropologists talk a lot about the rapid growth and ultimate success of human beings through the use of ingenuity and tools. Typically, they illustrate this point with things like axes, spears, ropes, torches, and eventually wheels, plows, carts, pulleys, and on and on, down the development of technology and innovation until we arrive at things we take for granted today. But arguably just as important as these inventions is human collectivism. Humans on their own were vulnerable. Humans together were strong. We formed families, packs, tribes, villages, cities, kingdoms, civilizations. And at the same time as our physical tools were improving and evolving to solve our problems, so were our collectives, strategizing through mutual action on ways to keep people healthy, safe, and thriving. These strategies took many forms over the centuries, uh, in many places, but every civilization was born with a common understanding that working together could solve our problems much more effectively than working alone. 
However, there was another invention which grew to become almost as central and powerful as collectivism in human history. Money. Trade between individuals and groups became increasingly complex over time, to the point where there needed to be a neutral measure of the exact value of the items being traded. After all, who would want to trade something to one person, and then trade the same thing to another person and get more or less in return from one or the other? Ideally, every trade would be equal, tied to the set value of the item. So we developed currency, and began to put monetary value on the items and labor we provided in trade. It wasn't long before the currency itself took on its own value, and could be traded independently of any other item or service. The amassing of currency, then, could buy more and more valuable items for the person who held that wealth. Then the person who bought those items could hoard them and then eventually trade them again, this time at a value which they set for the purposes of amassing more currency which they could use to buy more valuable goods which they could sell for more currency and an economy was born. This pattern was repeated around the world in civilizations which never interacted with the world outside. Just as collective needs were solved through collective action, individual needs were solved through individual trade. Now this was not a universal constant, of course, there were groups that treated goods and services as collectively owned, and shared resources as much as they could. And it is in this divergence that we can see the primitive seeds of the conflict which rages on today between individualism and collectivism, or the balance between ownership and shared prosperity, or the needs of the few versus the needs of the many. In a sophisticated society, trade economies needed oversight, and to prevent ex in a sophisticated society, trade economies needed oversight to prevent extreme manipulation and inequality from dissolving the collective into total subservience to the singularly wealthy. So the systems by which civilization formed and aided their people were directed to provide a check on the excesses of the economy. And this is how government became the quote-unquote enemy of the private sector. All of this is an oversimplification, and some things could probably be called into question by some historians or anthropologists, but the overall point is this. While some might try to argue that government exists solely as a counter to enterprise, the collective action of a government developed independently of enterprise, and is still utilized towards the same goals as those of our ancient ancestors, to protect and assist the people. Viewed from this perspective, we can see the demonization of the government for what it is, the economic and individualistic side of society attempting to assert dominance over the collective side. Ironically, this is being achieved through vast coordinated efforts by many people over significant spans of time, but the goal is that ultimately this coordination will be rendered obsolete. Private sector extremists envision a world built on the tenets of social Darwinism in which the smartest and strongest will succeed without worrying about the needs or desires of less intelligent and less strong people. Now, The appeal of this ideology is certainly clear. Who wouldn't want to worry only about themselves to focus on their own survival first and foremost? And doesn't social Darwinism reflect a meritocracy rewarding those who work the hardest? But this is a fantasy, and not a particularly well thought out fantasy at that. Humans do not, have not, and never will exist in a vacuum. We rise and fall as groups, or we cease to retain our humanity. The infrastructures of our society cannot survive in a world of selfish ideals. Consider the firefighter. A firefighter is a person working for the good of the collective. 
She cannot operate selfishly, because fires do not affect people singularly. If a house is burning down and she chooses to let it burn unless she can receive something of value in return, the fire will not always stop with just that one house. Fires can spread, leap from building to building, and just because one person can afford the cost of having their home saved doesn't mean their neighbor can, and if their neighbor's house catches fire, there's nothing to stop the house next to them from catching fire if the wind carries the flames in that direction. By exercising pure individualism, a firefighter could condemn an entire block to die, and those deaths would not be some meritocratic expression of the victim's weakness or ignorance or failure, but a random act of the elements beyond their control, unfair, random. Firefighters aid in the collective good to solve a problem beyond the control of individuals. If left to an idealistic private sector, if they acted only in the good of the individuals solely for their own benefit as firefighters, they would risk the deaths of countless individuals who are unable to fend for themselves and who are the victims of random fate. Or take roads. We build and maintain roads for the collective good, not just because people want to travel or to get to places more safely, but because maintaining such public infrastructure benefits both the collective and the individual. Think of the businesses which would fail if we were to let our roads crumble. The trucking industry would cease to be efficient, and since efficiency is the goal of that industry, it would cease to be a viable business. Without the reliability of trucks, chain stores would be unable to keep their shelves sufficiently stocked. Grocery stores would be forced to rely only on local farmers, whose yields could be inconsistent and whose products would be limited to only what could be grown in that area, leaving many places without a ready supply of nutritional food. Now. Private sector extremists have suggested that enterprise would step in and fulfill the needs of road construction and maintenance, paid for by those who use the road the most through a series of tolls and fees. But tolls place a disproportionate burden on the poor and working classes. There's a reason that people who make less money pay less or sometimes almost nothing in taxes, which are used to fund public infrastructure. The people with the most wealth need to chip in more to make the roads viable for everyone else. And here we come to the most common argument of anti-government pro-industrial ideologues. Why should the rich pay for the needs of the poor? Why should they be punished for accumulating more money than others? What right does the government have to redistribute their wealth? I'll tell you why. Economies are built on the functioning flow of trade. The more people hold on to wealth and don't spend it, the less trade occurs. And the more people who are unable to trade with those who are holding on to their wealth, the more trade begins to calcify and stagnate. Eventually, the balance of the haves and have-nots becomes so unequal that the economy basically stalls. Suddenly, the accumulation of wealth dries up, profitable businesses become less profitable, and slowly those vast hordes of wealth become less and less valuable because the cost of trade has plummeted to meet the demands of those who need cheaper and cheaper goods just to survive. And if no one can afford to regularly pay for roads and firefighters and schools and hospitals and a military and housing, those things will become less and less economically viable and they'll cease to be a priority and will lose many of them altogether, leaving the population immobile, uneducated, unhealthy, and unsafe. And that's how civilizations die. In short, we need to balance the pooling of resources with individual freedoms in order for civilization to continue to thrive. Government is the tool by which we maintain that balance. And the more effective the government is, the better the civilization will function and grow. 
greed, income inequality, privatization, these things all stand in the way of our ability to successfully wield the tool of government to solve collective problems. The more power belongs to individuals, the less power belongs to the people as a whole. And the people need that power to keep our civilization together. So the next time you hear someone decry the government, or promote social Darwinism, or tell you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, remember the, the best description of the government is not Reagan's, the government is the problem, but rather the words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Thank you for listening to this deviation, folks. Wanted to, uh, as promised, announce the next movie we will be discussing on Contextual Deviance. And the next film is 2017's Academy Award-nominated film Lady Bird. Recently added to Amazon Prime, the film is uh, available now. Hopefully you will have a chance to watch it before next Wednesday's episode goes up. Uh, a good quick text for you if you're watching the movie for the first time and considering it's a pretty new movie and it flew under a lot of people's radar uh, I would imagine that that's probably the case for some of you uh, a good quick text I think to watch the movie through is look for the contrast between truth and untruth and that's not specifically about lying although there is quite a bit of uh, conversation around lying in the film but also lies of omission, uh, fronting or pretending to be someone you're not or changing the, uh, the way you present yourself specifically to present an unreal version of who you are. This happens through many characters throughout the movie and I think the contrast between when there is truth and when there is untruth uh, speaks to a lot of the movie's themes and I think is very worth paying attention to while you're watching it. There are other ways to look at the movie, and having recorded the episode, I can tell you there are at least four others that we talk about uh, that will be up next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Uh, if you have a chance, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be a huge help. We recently got added to Google's new podcast uh, service. Uh, we're also on Spotify now, which is very exciting. Uh, since that's where a lot of people are listening to their podcasts these days. So find us on there, Contextual Deviance. Uh, in the meantime, have a nice rest of your week. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Uh, it's Independence Day, uh, in case it wasn't clear that that's why I wrote this little treatise on the value of government. Um, hope you have a nice, uh, nice holiday, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>